Hi, I'm Tanya Estes, and welcome to Tales from the Moon Tower, a podcast that brings you stories about Texas history that you never got in school, including unsung heroes, amazing ladies, myths, legends, true crime, and tales that still haunt us. Today, I interview Blaine Conklin with the Round Rock Historical Preservation Commission. We talk about his role in getting the Tonkawa honored as an official local legend in the city of Round Rock after decades of sensationalized misinformation about cannibalism prevented acknowledgement of their rightful place in Texas history. If you like Tales from the Moon Tower and want more information about this or previous episodes, you can follow us at www.talesfromthemoontower.com or you can follow Tales from the Moon Tower on Facebook or Instagram. And now, on to the show. So, welcome, Blaine, to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Tanya. I appreciate it. So, I invited you on the show today to talk with us about the work you did on the Round Rock Historical Preservation Commission, advocating for the recognition of the Tonkawa tribe as an official local legend by the Round Rock City Council. But first, I'd like to rewind a bit and ask about how your interest in Native American history began. Yeah, so I was born in South Dakota and grew up in um, the Dakotas um, through high school. And so we, you know, I was always kind of right next door to Indian reservations and, you know, grew up with family, friends and neighbors and, you know, schoolmates um, who are American Indians. And I was a voracious reader. And so I'd read those uh, little biographies of uh, famous Americans, you know, presidents, um, generals, as well as Indian chiefs and and warriors like Sitting Bull and Red Cloud and Crazy Horse. So, you know, at at some point, which you hope happens with children of any age, you know, (laughs) the the romantic stories of the past kind of ran into the reality Mm -hmm. of what I knew of the world. And I came to realize at some point, you know, what a tragedy for indigenous civilizations and cultures had been brought about by the arrival of the Europeans and how kind of a irreversible tragedy, you know, like there's no way to get that back kind of lost civilization, I guess. Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, growing up, it was just kind of in the atmosphere is in my environment. So that then fast forward to 2017 is when I w- was appointed to the Historic Preservation Commission in Round Rock, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. The main purpose of the commission is to kind of maintain and enforce architectural standards in historic buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I live in the downtown Round Rock area, and, there, and so there are several homes and businesses that are historical. But I, and that's interesting. But I, but I also took an interest in the human history of the yes. area. Mm-hmm. And on the official city website. You know, there's kind of a historical narrative, and it begins with the Tonkawa, who populated central Texas, not just in the Round Rock area, but kind of all along the Balcones Escarpment, where a lot of springs gush forth. And, you know, it was an ideal place for people to to live and lots of game and fertile land. And uh, the, the Tonkawa had a, a name for this area in I'm probably going to mispronounce it, but uh, they called it Takachue Puitsu, Land of Good Water. And so when I first started looking at the website, it was a little bit horrifying at first because there's a huge chunk devoted to the Tonkawa that was 
obsessed with their reputation for being cannibals. Mm-hmm. And um, and this is the Round Rock City website. Yes. So yeah. this is the thing that officially represents the city, but that's what they go for, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like the introduction um, to Round Rock, and the introduction to the Tonkoa was that they were just these big cannibals, and mm-hmm. the fascination with it, or not fascination, but the the uh, the amount of space given to that, it it was. Uh, a little inappropriate I thought it was dehumanizing and one of my first the first things I was able to do is 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 get that description of the Tonkawa more balanced and took out some of that description of them as uh, as cannibals it seemed like that was the number one character if you came away reading that description the number one thing you came away with was they were cannibals and they are extinct they're no longer here right I, I find that happens a lot. I mean, even now, you know, despite the fact that you think we would have moved forward a lot with our history, there's still a lot of institutions, a lot of texts, and a lot of knowledge that, you know, our generation maybe grew up with that still gets passed along as, as current mm-hmm. fact. And that's one of the reasons why I started the, this podcast in the first place, was to kind of get people engaged with their local history. And I love that that's essentially what you did, is that mm-hmm. you saw something that was really like a sensational story mm-hmm. and you became engaged with the research and then you made a move to try to say, well, this is not the story that's being told. Let's get the real story out there. Exactly. So I, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. And so before we go into mm-hmm. the next part of this journey, because I think it's a really big deal for one Whenever people have like dug their heels in on what they believe history to be, mm-hmm. no matter how many facts you bring forward, it is very <laughs> difficult to get people to move forward with going, oh, okay, well, here's what's really, here's what really happened. Or here's the, you know, um, I did a story right. recently, for example, on, on Shoal Creek, and we talk about the the very famous you know, Shoal Creek massacres, when really it's the death of two people, one of which was a Native American, like, person who should have been there, was like his people had been there for centuries, and Gideon White, who, you know, knowingly Mm -hmm. inhabited land that was supposed to be off limits to settlers, you know, and it's like, Mm -hmm. it was a massacre, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, yes. but that's what we believe. And so, and again, that dehumanizes the nameless Native warrior. That, you know, Gideon White is the name everyone knows. So I think that's interesting that you did basically the same thing. So let's get to know the Tonkawa a little bit before we get to the the second part of your journey here. I read the essay that you wrote to the, um, you know, on the historical commission about, you know, that contained a lot of research. And I have to say, Blaine, uh, I spent my career as a librarian. I was very impressed with all your resources. You did very well there. Mm, (laughs) Well, thank you. Well, I just... I do want to just say that I do not consider myself an expert on this, but I did have the question when, you know, even though I, I thought the the focus on the cannibalism was inappropriate, but I didn't know if it, if how much of it was true. And so that's right. what spurred me to, I wanted to do a little research and see, you know, what truth there was to this. And so, yeah, I, I just went to my local library. I'm sure you'd be proud. Yes, um, I am very proud of that. <laughs> and and I had a couple of resources uh, as well myself. And I'll give you titles of of couple that I thought were the most valuable in this yeah. help in this uh, search. Um, 
One is a book from 1999, so it's not that old, although it, um, that makes me feel old, but it, it doesn't seem to feel <laughs> that long ago. But the author is Kelly Himmel, H-I-M-M-E-L, and the title of the book is The Conquest of the Karankawas and the Tonkawa. 1821 okay. to 1859. And so, as the title says, it's not just the Tonkwa, but the Karankawa, who were more along the coast. Yes, that's where I but, grew up, is with the Karankawa. Okay. I, I grew up in South Texas on the coast, and that was who I knew growing up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's a really valuable resource there. But um, in all the sources that I found, the, the kind of the picture that, that I gleaned was... Um, they were hunters and gatherers. They hunted bison, deer, um, turkey. They vowed that they would never be farmers. And um, that, <laughs> that, that kind of came from their origin legend. And I don't have a lot of detail here, but they celebrated it annually as a wolf dance. And so they... I think that's they, kind of fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were, uh, saw themselves as being created by the wolves and, and the wolves told them, you know, don't you don't ever become farmers, you know, and kind of settled, you know, you're hunters and gatherers. And and so that that was their way of life. And again, along the Balcones escarpment here, there was plenty, you know, plenty of water and plenty of game and um, kind of natural resources like that. They lived in teepees. They I like a couple features of their they had a matriarchal family structure, so the I grandmother. I was hoping to touch on that. Yeah. <laughs> the grandmother was the head of the family, and they elected their leaders democratically. Wow. And which is anything but you know people want to say they're uncivilized savages, but that's not uncivilized. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of the a couple of the features, and we'll get into this more because as as I said, the the impetus for my research was you know this cannibalism uh, aspect. But cannibalism was just one aspect of of them that outsiders and outsider descriptions of them used to kind of paint them as uh, savage and inhuman. Or and and once you go down that path, it's not a, a long leap. Uh, and I may be getting ahead of, of where you, you want to go, but it's not a long uh, reach to say if if it feels like they're a threat to you, then exterminating them is the logical response but a few of the uh feature a few of the characteristics they tattooed their bodies mm -hmm. uh, they had elaborate tattoos um they didn't wear much in the way of clothing mm -hmm. and you you know don't need to most of the year here in, in not Texas. in texas <laughs> <laughs> um eating spoiled food or um male-to-male -male sex uh ritual cannibalism and I'll, so there's the key word, ritual uh, mm -hmm. cannibalism. But things like this, when outsiders maybe observed some of these things or rumors were started about them, it painted a picture for others that, well, these are just a different kind of animal. Right. And not, right. not fully human. And so if we feel they're a threat to us, then <laughs> it assuages our, our guilt in, in the idea of getting rid of them, if not if not literally killing them, at least getting them out of our way. Well, and that that's actually something, I mean, well, of course, we're still obviously dealing with that now, but that's actually something that's gone back for centuries as well, because I was looking at the essay that you wrote about it, mm. 
and you cite some information regarding that people would make this accusation if it mm -hmm. behooved them in any way. So Correct. if it served a purpose, like one of the things that they wanted to do was frighten other tribes right. so that they would be fearsome. Um, and, and this is Texas Rangers are the ones who would spread mm -hmm. this. Um, and so you and it. You know, you started showing like Stephen F. Austin used yeah. to shift that accusation between the Tonkawa and the Karankawa, just yeah. depending on what what needed served. <laughs> so I thought your essay was really fascinating. But this, to me, as a woman who's done a lot of research on on women's history, sounded a lot like accusations of witchcraft that were made mm. against women that had property or power mm -hmm. that someone else wanted. And that's mm. essentially what you're saying they did here is that they would label them you know, these fierce cannibals, if it behooved what they wanted. Right. Yes. The, 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 the Tonkawa and the Karankawa posed little, you know, very little or no threat at all to the settlers. Mm -hmm. They were peaceful yet. Um, you're exactly right. Including Stephen F. Austin. They used that when it was useful to them. And, and especially when it was useful to remove them from the area that right. they wanted to settle. It became very useful uh, tactic. And I, I wanted to quote Mirabeau Lamar, if I could, this, oh, yeah. the, second, <laughs> the second president of the Republic of Texas. The author is Jeffrey Stewart Kerr. And in 2013, he wrote The Seat of Empire, The Embattled Birth of Austin, Texas. And he talks about how Mirabeau Lamar, when he was a kid, had written an essay. He grew up in Georgia, but he wrote, written an essay kind of around the question of what was the European settling of the New World a, a just thing or, or was it without any bad effects or anything? And as a young schoolboy, he speaks rather empathetically about mm. the plight of the indigenous people. But as an adult, he had evolved. And so here you see the chain of of connecting the charge of cannibalism to the inhumanity of, of these people and therefore the justification for getting rid of them. And so I quote here, quote, if the wild cannibals of the woods will not desist from their massacres, if they will continue to war upon us with the ferocity of tigers and hyenas, hmm. it is time we should retaliate their warfare and continues to go on about prosecuting and exterminating war um, that admits of no compromise and ends in total extinction or total expulsion. So based, and, yeah, dehumanizing them to get rid of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And along those lines, you also, or you wrote about in your essay, um, the research that you came across that showed that they actually fought alongside Texans mm. in their fight for independence, but then weren't rewarded in yes. the same way, mm -hmm. and not only weren't rewarded, they were actually kicked off the land that they fought right. with Texans to save. So they they were very helpful to the early Anglo settlers. There's uh, there's a story even of of one of Round Rock's early settlers, Jacob Harrell, who is also actually incidentally has also been honored as a Round Rock local legend in recent mm -hmm. years. But Jacob's oldest son, John traveled to California in 1849 with four other men they, uh, for the gold rush, but they were led to the coast, Pacific coast through Mexico by a Tonkawa scout. And so they wouldn't have made it there alive probably without that Tonkawa scout. But as you mentioned, the Texas Rangers, the United States army all used the, the services of the scouts sometimes in their war uh, against the Comanche. 
And so there is that enmity between those two tribes that, you know, the United States and, and the Republic of Texas used the services of the Tonkwa in, in service of, of their war against the, the Comanches. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's probably, and you mentioned one of the most heartbreaking aspects of this, the Tonkwa warriors did fight alongside Texans in the War of Independence for Mexico. Mm-hmm. And as, as you know, one of the rewards of being a, a veteran in that war was you were granted some land, um, but they were not included in that. And it was soon after that. So the, the city of Round Rock, it was called Brushy Creek originally when it, was, when it began to be settled and became a trading post. I think around the eight, year 1854 is mm-hmm. when it the post office got the name of Round Rock. And it was just really one year later when the entire area was cleared of all Native Americans. Mm. And and so they were, they, now by then their numbers had diminished. They had suffered some disease. And, and so their, the number, the tribe is in some accounts is, is kind of described as kind of a ragtag band. Uh, so their numbers had been reduced, but they were here when Round Rock was founded. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were moved to a northern part of Texas. And then in 1859, the entire state removed American Indians to Oklahoma or Indian Territory. So what is the Round Rock Local Legend Award and what is yeah. the role that the commission plays in who gets nominated and selected? Yeah. So the the commission appoints a committee every year. They they usually select three honorees, someone past or present who has played a significant role in the kind of the founding or the development of the city. And and, and it's so the, the city it's the city council that does this. Actually, the historic preservation commission makes the final decision. Oh. And then, okay. and then the award is is given at the city council meeting. And so it was given Thursday, November 14th during the city council meeting, okay. but it's, ba- it's pretty much a rubber stamp at the city council level, but okay. the historic preservation commission, they appoint a commit a committee for the local legends to kind of solicit nominations and to review nominations. And so going back a couple of years when I was first appointed on the commission and mm-hmm. I became kind of involved in this process after kind of, uh, you know, discovering this focus on cannibalism in in the website of the city, that's when I started my research. And so later that year, when our our duties came to the local legend uh, appointments, I had already done my research at that point. And I had, you know, a better picture of who the Tonkwa were and what role cannibalism did or didn't play. And And I may have a couple more things to say about about the cannibalism itself. But Oh, sure. So anyway, in a, in a meeting, I, I raised the question, has, you know, I'm interested in nominating the Tonkawa. Um, has anybody, you know, I was new to the commission. So I said, you know, has anybody ever thought of that? And to come to find out it had come up. And just in recent years, one of the things that had been an obstacle to them being considered was their reputation as cannibals. Mm-hmm. And I was... I was kind of, again, a little bit horrified that that, that right. was still a, a roadblock. And by that time, I had done my research and I had I was convinced that they really deserved this honor and that the, the cannibalism story was more complicated. It, they did not deserve to be 
barred from consideration because of that. Well, and when I went through your essay and looked at some of the research that you had done, where there was a lot of it was really either rumor or, like we said, accusations mm -hmm. for power. I mean, it there may have been a practice, you know, mm -hmm. here and there, as you said, like of a fallen warrior. It might mm -hmm. have been to sort of their sort of ritual for kind of a, taking in some of his power as a warrior or, yeah. or uh, you know. So I thought that was kind of interesting and in a weird way made sort of sense. But you also talked about you know, that there was – this sort of thing happening throughout the world over the centuries and for different ways and meanings and that how Christians had been considered cannibals for a very long time because of communion. And, That's right. and they didn't just sprout and go, yay, everyone's Christian and happy. I mean, they had a tough battle being accepted too. Right. And that was one of the reasons that it was tough. I, I thought that was interesting. That's a great example of uh, outsiders looking at a uh, ritual that they don't understand stand and right um, yep calling it these cannibals uh, <laughs> these early christians <laughs> are cannibals but you're right the most any of most of the evidence is really just hearsay or rumor and in fact there's a there's one source who's very prolific um on these things is his name is noah smithwick and he, he's got a lot of stories but he's also has a reputation of not being very reliable Oh, we um, don't have any of that going on in history. <laughs> <laughs> and as we touched on earlier, the accusations always had a reason. Despite the rumors of cannibalism, it didn't stop Texans and, and uh, it didn't stop the U.S. Army or the, the Republic of Texas from using the aid of the Tonkawa when it was useful to them. That's right. So it's hypocritical. But yes, the the research that I've been able to find on on the actual practice is in a ritual setting and and as you noted when a victorious warrior um you know and who defeated a, a, a rival in combat would ritually partake of some portion of of that warrior's body to kind of absorb mm -hmm. the strength and courage of that warrior mm -hmm. and um but it, which is very different than the idea of Oh, these Tonkawa, they just, you know, it wasn't a meal unless there was human flesh involved. Right. Know? They're hungry. They're, yes. It's <laughs> different. You know? It wasn't uh -huh. sustenance. And not that that makes it fabulous, but that at the same time, you know, they just, that we were all very different then as mm -hmm. well, as far as what we knew about science and what we knew about mm. Uh, religion and whole, you know all sorts of things. So there's a lens I think that we're responsible, you know, to use as as supposedly educated humans, you know. And and I saw I went looking around, Blaine, and you probably came across the same thing um, for pictures. And I didn't find very many pictures, but I found a mm -hmm. lot of horrifying websites. And what I mean by horrifying is disinformation yeah. um, that came up very prominently in my search. And I, I mean, I was so mad <laughs> and yeah. I hadn't even known very much before, you know, reading everything, you know, like I said, if I, if I learned about a tribe, it was more Kawakwa um, and anything that I've learned all, you know, doing this podcast is, is more than, you, you grow up in Texas. I'll, I'll just tell you, since you didn't grow up here, you know, you grow up in Texas and a lot of what you learn in Texas history and, and maybe you experience this in, in South Dakota, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of myth or very one-sided 
perspective mm-hmm. of history. And so, for example, you know, my town was 54% Hispanic, but we didn't hear about ourselves unless we were told that we were the villains of the Alamo. And mm-hmm. that's all yeah. we heard. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's one of the other reasons why I go digging around with the podcast is to just try and find out what everyone's authentic place is and what everyone's authentic history is. Well, so, and I, I love that about your podcast. Um, and just with regard to the local legends, there, there, there have been examples in the past of, of African-Americans or Latinos mm-hmm. um, being recognized. But okay. R- Round Rock, so this isn't the first non-Anglo uh, <laughs> I was honoree, wondering. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the nature of historical reportage is, is generally in favor of Anglo men. And, you know, we know a lot of the names of the, of the men who settled here. The names of their wives and children, not, not as much, although they do come up. Um, the names of slaves, we only know them if they are mentioned in the inventory of the property um, that are they're owned. In the names of the Tonkua, we don't have any <laughs> names of locals. There's some names of, of some chiefs elsewhere, but kind of down the ladder of conventionally some historical descriptions, who do they, configure, who do they consider important? You know, right, they're, right. they're they're way down on the ladder. And so right. I was really proud that we were able to, you know, it, it kind of start at the beginning, you know, and we have a long way to go, but we need to get it right at the beginning yes. and recognize who was here hundreds, thousands of years, even before the Tonkawa were a, were a kind of an identifiable tribe or a recognizable yeah. people. Um, just up the road in Florence, there is an archaeological site called the Galt site. G-A-U-L-T, yes. and, if you, and if you Google Galt site, um, you'll come upon a, a great website with some information there. It's called texasbeyondhistory.net, but there is evidence dating back 16,000 years before the present that people were here. And, and that's so tangible history. You can it go is. and see it and touch it and interact with it. And- it is. One little detail on the cannibalism that I I was I forgot to mention is that oh, sure. so, some of the evidence of that of cannibalism isn't isn't uh, restricted to the Tonkawa. It's Anglo frontiersmen sometimes. Oh yeah. Did it so? So this wasn't a a feature merely of some American Indian tribes, but. This is complete. This is not completely off topic, but it's just kind of interesting that this comes up because I started watching a woman on YouTube and her channel is called Ask a Mortician. And she gives this very like educated and inform- informative information on all sorts of things revolving around anything to do with death. And so one mm-hmm. of the things that she talked about was people had questions about the Donner party. And so she went through like cannibalism through history, if you will. And it was like really informative and, and educational. She's not a sensationalist. She hates sensationalism, but mm-hmm. and she's funny though. But it was just really interesting to see that just a few days ago by coincidence. And then I see, I see what you've done here and the rumors that, you know, or the history that you're trying to get right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just really found it interesting, like one of your closing statements for um, for your in your essay was dealing with your overall objectives, I think, um, what you were ultimately trying to achieve. And, you know, it's 
I don't know you that well. I know you a little bit, but I've only mm-hmm. ever known you to care about compassion and justice and, and equal rights. And, and so I thought that was really interesting. So do you want to tell us in your own words, like what was your objective with, I mean, because this took you a couple of years. You faced some brick walls. So what were (laughs) you trying to achieve? Yeah, uh, thank you. And so I did nominate the Tonkua um, in 2018. So it was after that conversation late in 2017. The nominations for that year had closed. But in 2018, I did nominate them. I wrote this essay in support of it. um, And so I wanted to kind of put it in a wider perspective, you know, Round Rock, I've lived in Round Rock with my family for about 17 years and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's home. It's, it started off as a, a little railroad stop and, um, it's, it was a small town for so long, but in, in recent years, it has become an important part of the major, of the wider, you know, Austin metropolitan area. It mm-hmm. attracts businesses and residents from around the world. Um, has a reputation for being a safe city with good schools and high quality of life. And so I think Round Rock and, and places like it are, this is where families are raised. And, and the issues that face Round Rock um, and at people everywhere is people. Simple right. as that, people. And, you know, whether it's immigration, healthcare, education, race relations, um, jobs, housing, taxes. It's all about people. So the Round Rock Legend program, it probably was never expressed in such you know, lofty terms as, as, as this, but it's really about people and who we are. And, and so local legend program is about people. So I just felt that we're not going to fix everything by doing you know, public recognition of these things, but I think public recognition and public acknowledgement uh, uh-huh. is very important. And we want to, for Round Rock to be a leader in this century, um, we need to be honest about who we are and where we came from. And we need to start at the beginning and to get it right. And the Tonkawa and their ancestors lived here uh, for millennia. And they were here when Round Rock was founded. I nominated them in 2018, but they were not selected that year. And I was told that Oh, some people felt sens- this was too sensitive, and and I didn't I didn't really like that answer. Instead, one of the sele- uh, selections for 2018 was the Round Rock Water Tower. You know, an, an yeah, inanimate object. Yeah, I was object. hoping you would get to that. that <laughs> I was like an inanimate object versus culture. <laughs> which, which is very uh, much contradictory to what I believe that is that the local legends is about people. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, people benefited. You know, it, it's an important symbol of our community, but I already, f- I felt that the the water tower was already kind of legendary. It didn't need this, but so I was disappointed that there was still a feeling that, oh, this is too sensitive to, to touch on this. And so I renominated them the next year, um, yeah. this year, 2019. And this time they were selected as well as, t- you know, two other worthy honorees, including an African-American family with mm-hmm. deep roots in the community. And so I was um, really happy to see Good. that this year. And uh, to put the icing on the cake, as I was saying, um, some members of the commission and the committee were able to reach out to the Tonkawas are not extinct. They, oh. There is a tribe in Oklahoma, 
the Tonkawa tribe, and there are around 850 registered members of the tribe. And wow. members of the committee were able to contact them. And we actually had the president of the Tonkawa tribe attend the <laughs> ceremony last That's week. That's a big deal. It was, it was really, really satisfying to, to be able to share that with wow. them. President Russell Martin, and he came with his nephew, Kiefer, who's a young man involved in the tribe. And, and so um, I think it was a very positive uh, yes. experience for, you know, for our city. And, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, to have them travel from Oklahoma over here, yeah. you know, for something that goes back that far, that's really wonderful. So, and that, that actually speaks a lot to, I think this is a bigger deal maybe even than you're giving yourself credit for, <laughs> so, oh. because I will say, you know, it, representation matters and it's not just about the visual, it's about, and especially when you're doing it in the context of dispelling myth, um, you know, or trying to get it right, as you say, it, it matters, like, like I was saying earlier about being the villains at the Alamo, it, it really, really gives mm. yourself in a completely different sense of identity. And as whenever you understand like the truth behind your history mm-hmm. and, you know, I just think it's important for everybody to feel engaged and, and, and that matters representation matters. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm glad that they chose like, humans instead of an inanimate <laughs> object this time around yes, um, me too. you know but they you know that that speaks a lot to the work that you've done so thank you very much for doing that mm-hmm. well you know. thank you i appreciate it do you know what's on the horizon what you're looking at next oh um i know this just happened so you're probably gonna yeah. take a breath <laughs> well I, related to this um there are a couple things that are that are following up um my state representative, uh, James Talrico, is is working on a um, a resolution. Um, so an I official know. Texas resolution to, and I don't know what the exact wording is going to be, but it's going to, I think, be recognizing that that Round Rock um, selected uh, the Tonkwa as a local legend. And so again, I'm not sure exactly what's going to be in it, but so he's taking that up, and and that'll be one more, you know, kind of symbolic thing and symbolic acknowledgement. Um, I have a neighbor who's a sculptor and I actually had two co-nominators. One of them was my neighbor, Antonio, and another was a neighbor, Tina. Mm -hmm. And Tina's family was the family that, the other family that was recognized as a local legend with the roots going back to the earliest days of Round Rock, African-American family. But I, but those two people and their neighbors and friends of mine. Uh-huh. So I asked them to be co-nominators. But my neighbor Antonio is a sculptor, and he had already, even before I talked to him about this, he had a vision in his mind for a sculpt, a sculpture um, commemorating the, the Tonkawa people. And he's uh, created s- several magnificent sculptures, one of which was the most recent to be erected um, in Round Rock, down near where the Round Rock is, uh, as an actual yes. thing, in Brushy on um, the Brushy Creek area there, and yeah. so I'm interested in, and, and there are others in the community interested in kind of an artistic expression like that to to honor to honor and commemorate them. Um, so there's a, and then you know, a sculpture over there now of a oh. of a cowboy and and uh, on a horse, but no, he has. A concept, and I, I believe he's begun a, a small model. So, 
and he's a very busy man. He has a lot right. of <laughs> projects, but it's something that he and others in the community have expressed an interest in, in um, supporting. And so that's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So nothing official. I don't know where it would go or, but it would be great if it could be put in that, in that part of, uh, part of town. But yeah, so there's a couple little things like that. And I also just wanted to thank you for um, expressing interest in this and, and providing this opportunity for me to talk about it. Yeah. And, well, um, you know, yeah. I'm interested in anything that y'all do moving forward. So keep me posted. Well, thanks for coming on the show today, Blaine. And I really want to say that this is, I think, a bigger deal even than you're giving yourself credit for, <laughs> especially if Tallarico is picking it up. And, mm. you know, it just keeps propelling itself. And, and, and the more recognition that we get, the better, because I think it is mm-hmm. really, really important to to get our history right. So thank you so much for that. I know it was oh. a couple of years and you per- persevered. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. <laughs> All right. We'll talk right. to you soon, Blaine. Thank All right. you. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to Tales from the Moon Tower. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. Each review helps people find the show. You can also connect with Tales from the Moon Tower on Instagram and Facebook, and you can visit the website at www.talesfromthemoontower.com to find out more about the show. The link to our Redbubble shop is there too if you want to help support the podcast with fun merch like shirts and stickers. Music for the show is provided by Kevin McLeod with Creative Commons Attributions. That's our show and thank you for listening. <laughs>